0: This is John Hulsman, and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, uh, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves in. And there's clarity coming to the battlefield in Ukraine uh, that we update. Not terribly welcome clarity from the West, but Putin's game plan is becoming clear. And so let's talk ourselves through this process Having failed in his blitzkrieg to take all of Ukraine, and remember, the original plan called for Kiev being taken in about two days and all of Ukraine, an area greater than the size of France, to be taken in two weeks, Putin realized he'd made three basic strategic errors. One, as we've said before, his plan was too complicated. Two, he didn't think Ukraine was a nation and wouldn't hold together, and certainly in eastern Ukraine, they wouldn't be fighting At all, let alone heroically, for the Zelensky government as they have. And three, he didn't expect the West to do much of anything, as had been the case in 2014 when he'd seized Crimea and made inroads into the Donbass, the eastern speaking part of the Russian speaking part of Ukraine, with Russian speaking separatists at his uh, disposal. Um, All this proved to be wrong and he failed. And so Putin has regrouped. Uh, He now has a simpler plan, and the plan is uh, now very clear. First, he wants to establish a contiguous land bridge between Crimea and the south and the Donbass. So he will control all of the Sea of Azov and the coastline between Crimea and the Donbass, connecting rostov don in in Russia with the Donbass, with Mariupol, which has just fallen to the Russians along the Sea of Azov, to Crimea. And he will contiguously control about half of the seaboard of Ukraine and all the seacoast along the Sea of Azov. And Putin, by and large, has done this. He's extended his troops. Uh, They don't seem capable of going farther, which they'd hope to do to go on to Odessa and maybe even to Transnistria in Moldova, the Russian-speaking part of Moldova, the sliver there. He doesn't seem able to do that, but he's blockaded Odessa, thereby crippling the Ukrainian economy and stopping the flow of food vitally to the rest of the world, and he's taken territory from Crimea all the way back along the Sea of Azov to the Donbass to Russia, and that he's been able to do. In the Donbass itself, it's been slow but steady going, and at the moment over Sevryo-Donetsk, which is the main city left in Ukrainian hands in the Luhansk, the first of the two provinces, and at the time of, of the fighting now, since 2014, the Russians occupied roughly 80% of Luhansk and far less of Donetsk, something around say 15 to 20% of Donetsk. And to control the Donbas, he wants to finish with Luhansk at least. And to do this, he needs to take Severodonetsk. Donetsk. And he's doing its standard old Russian World War II tactics. He's trying to surround the pocket of Ukrainian fighters Ukrainian lines are indeed crumbling at the moment, and so it's quite possible he'll be able to do this. And the Ukrainians have said that, you know, they've broken out of the trench lines, this area for artillery and armor, unlike the heavily wooded north around Kiev, once they break out, the Russians have room to run with a football and will be able to make real progress. And so they're about a mile away from cutting off the vital supply lines to Severodonetsk. And once the supplies are cut off coming in from the West, frankly, it's a matter of time. And my feeling, the feeling of the Institute for the Study of War and the feeling for the British Ministry of Defense and my firm's feeling is all the same, which is that it's a matter of time until the Russians seal off the pocket, and that will put the Ukrainians in a very tough position. Either they have to retreat, leaving all of the Oblotsk of Luhansk in Russian hands, or they'll be surrounded. And those are, those are terrible choices. And again, this is standard Eastern Front World War II warfare. This is what Zhukov and Manstein did to each other back and forth in World War II. And this, this old playbook is what the Russians have gone back to. It's much easier to supply. This is a forward thrust. Again, old World War II Zhukov-like tactics straight ahead. And the Russians, like World War II, are just throwing troops in. As Stalin said, at a certain point, quantity becomes quality, and that's what the Russians are doing. They're, they're going for broke to finish taking all of Luhansk. There's an open question as to whether they can go on and take the, the, the whole of Donetsk. I think not, and my firm thinks not, though there's division among strategic analysts as to whether they can. Everyone agrees that they can't go beyond the Donbask. but my feeling is that what's likely to happen, and what seems clear, is that Putin is going for broke now, and he will then quickly say, after taking Severodonetsk, which is emerging, as the Ukrainian government said, as the largest battle in Europe since World War II, that he will succeed in the old Russian tactics of just throwing men straight forward in vast numbers at at sealing off this pocket. And then the, the Ukrainians will have to withdraw or be surrounded and captured. And so he will take the Oblotsk of Luhansk and he's established in the south a land bridge. Uh, The larger pincer movement that he planned from Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, down to the Donbass, that's failed too because actually the Ukrainians are pushing back the Russians to near the border in Kharkiv. There are limits to what the Russian troops can do and we're running into them. Again, their strategic goals are narrowing and narrowing and narrowing for the moment. I don't think Putin's overall plan to dominate, if not totally control Ukraine, has ended. But he's willing to do it in bite sizes rather than swallow it whole. Don't assume that strategically he still doesn't want to control Ukraine. Again, I think the order of preference for Putin remains exactly the same. Ideally, to finish having strategic depth, that is surrounding Russia, as a great power with satellites in front of it, so if there is invasion, the Russians have time and space to rectify the problem. And this has been the czarist playbook. Since Charles the Twelfth of Sweden tried to invade Russia in the 18th century, Napoleon in the 19th, and Hitler in the 20th, this is the old Russian strategic playbook, as we've talked about. Um, I think that he's continuing to want to do that, and ideally, he wants to take over, starve Ukraine out, and eventually swallow it in bite-sized morsels, and still take over the country. The second best option is just to make re- Ukraine a basket case if he can control. Most of the seaboard and blockade Odessa and the rest, a rump Ukrainian state that's landlocked, isn't likely to be a threat to anybody and will be a basket case and so will not be a demonstration effect for the value of turning to the West. And that's the second best option that he probably can live with as a wrecking power. He can wreck Ukraine. Um, He'd rather take it over, but wrecking as a wrecking power, that's just about acceptable. Um, in a wicked but calculated way. I think that's what he's trying to do. So the plan forward, if that's the strategy, tactically, is to finish the encirclement of Severodonetsk, which he's going to do. He already controls the majority of this land, this contiguous land bridge from Crimea back to Russia, along the Sea of Azov and Mariupol falling was essential to this working. And then he's going to say he's won. And he's going to ask for a ceasefire and he's gonna count on the West being divided. And this this plan would offer Putin all kinds of advantages. For one thing, his exhausted troops could rest, who've sustained more casualties in a few months of fighting in Ukraine than they did in the entirety of their almost decades-long effort in Afghanistan. Uh, the bloodiness of this conflict is is a notch up. And in fact, the Russian casualty rates seem like something like World War I or the Confederate Army of Robert E. Lee, the Army of Northern Virginia in the American Civil War. I mean, that's that's kind of what we're looking at here. And he needs these guys to rest. These are exhausted, depleted units. The best of his troops went into the failed mission in Kiev. He's down to conscripts in various areas and not crack troops. And he desperately needs time to rest, reorganize and resupply these troops. And so a ceasefire would allow him to take this breather while taking over more of Ukraine and having a better strategic position to jump off again in the future when he so decides to do so, having this land bridge in the south and full control of Luhansk and a good deal of control of Donetsk, largely dominating the Donbass. He can go back to his people and say, this is a win and that will secure his position in Russia. That's enough that he can say to his people politically, he's won at cost, but he's done what he set out to do. The longer-term goal of taking over the rest of Ukraine, he thinks, calculates, will become easier as the West loses interest in Ukraine and as it's largely landlocked and can't vitally get its agricultural products out through Odessa and the ports on the Black Sea. And he thinks that that would serve his interests Wonderfully, he's also counting on the West to be divided. And here his calculation has some real guile. He's counting on the fact that the West will be divided between Western Europeans who want peace at almost any price. And in fact, the Italians under Foreign Minister Luigi Di Maio are already peddling a peace plan. Please stop fighting under any cost. And the Eastern Europeans and the Americans and the Ukrainians who don't feel this way and want the war to continue until you get a more favorable result for Ukraine. Because with the supply, the Americans acting as an arsenal of democracy for Ukraine, and that's what they've done. Let me be clear about the American dominance in supplying Ukraine. America has supplied more money and more uh, um, weaponry, more wherewithal to Ukraine, by 10 times than any other country. Let me repeat that. America has aided Ukraine more than 10 times than any other country and two times what the rest of the world has done put together so although there are other people in Europe helping certainly in Eastern Europe helping overall the EU has failed abysmally again to take a leadership role in its own backyard and left it to the United States and this is a fact that can't be stated enough by ten times the United States has supplied Ukraine with more wherewithal than any other country and more than two times the rest of the world put together. And the United States in offering another 40 billion has just been appropriated for Ukraine seems intent on continuing to do this. Well, all this supplying takes time and learning how to work the weaponry, etc. The Ukrainians calculate that by June to August of this year, they'll be able to start a counteroffensive. And so this is the last time the, the, the last thing the Ukrainians, the Eastern Europeans and the Americans want is a ceasefire because we're just reaching the point where the Russians are exhausted, where they've reached their strategic apex, and now the Ukrainians can begin to push back these Russian territorial gains along the south of Ukraine and the Sea of Azov and the Donbass itself. And so Putin is calculating on these divisions in the West. On the other hand, the Western Europeans are desperate for a ceasefire. They would argue, look... We're the ones who trade with the Russians. The Americans don't trade with the Russians. So this affects us every single day. There's been food dislocation that makes us very nervous because if North Africa doesn't eat from the wheat that they normally get from Ukraine, Egypt particularly, and they only have a few days' bread supply, there'll be a mass exodus of refugees. Putin will then have weaponized food, and this refugee crisis won't hit the United States an ocean away. It will hit Europe as North Africans come north through the Mediterranean, and create a catastrophe in Europe. They're very nervous about this. And living in Italy, I can tell you this. Second, or third, beyond the trade issue and beyond the refugee issue and the weaponization of food, is the huge energy dislocation. While the Europeans are now at last belatedly aware of their suicidally stupid policy of energy where they didn't care about security of supply, For the last 20 years, despite me playing a war game for the European Commission in the early aughts, saying they really should. That getting gas from Norway isn't the same as getting gas from Russia. At last, belatedly, they have awoken in Germany from their long strategic slumber. And the able energy minister, the Green, Robert Habeck, is frantically pushing to wean Germany off of oil almost immediately, take the economic hit, as Europe is likely to enter into recession. And while there's this energy dislocation to quickly move to wean Germany off of dependence on Russian natural gas, which under the gormless angle of Miracle, the most overrated statesman. And by the way, every political risk uh, uh, adversary of mine, other, other group um, Ian Bremmer, this is you, who said that Miracle was the greatest statesman ever and ridiculous comments like that. Now see her for what she is. What a colossally stupid call. This is the Stanley Baldwin of the Russia crisis. She appeased Russia and almost offered Germany up to the Russians on a platter by having Nord Stream 2, where Germany would have gotten over 60% of its natural gas imports from Russia. Been utterly in the pocket of the Russians. So every political risk firm that got this wrong has a lot of explaining to do, unlike those of us who said, diversify supply, security of supply matters, forget this age of globalization nonsense that it doesn't and Habeck is moving very quickly to do this but it's still going to take a couple years to wean the germans off of russian natural gas to diversify supply to include more from norway more from algeria more from Qatar, and more from the united states through liquefied natural gas terminals in the north of the country where they can offshore on board to um, to the rest of germany the shale revolution and while this takes place A ceasefire for the Westerners would be ideal to deal with these myriad structural crises, a food crisis, stroke refugee crises, a trade crisis, an energy crisis. Just as inflation rages, the cost of living gets out of hand, and there could be stagflation as Europe is staring recession in the face. And so Western Europe is desperate for peace at almost any price. And Putin is calculating that if he takes Luhansk and takes this land bridge, he can say to everyone, I've stopped, that's it, let's have peace, and then let the Westerners fight amongst themselves. And at, at, at worst, he has a divided West as he continues forward, where there are fewer supplies coming to Ukraine, one would assume, as the Western Europeans beg off even more. Though, frankly, the United States is supplying as a country 10 times what any other country is. So they've already underperformed the EU. So how much more they'd underperform is an open question. But to divide the West at this late date through this process of declaring unilaterally a ceasefire would be a strategic move of of, of real significance. And I think this is what Putin is going to do. At exactly that moment, the Eastern Europeans, Poland et al., the Baltic states, Ukraine and the United States are going to say, wait a minute, the Russians are at the apogee of what they can do and we're just getting ready to have an offensive to push them back. And you want to stop that? So there is the potential for a real Western car crash coming if Putin takes his gains and declares a, a unilateral ceasefire following. So watch for that. So Putin's strategic plan is becoming increasingly clear. Finish the job in Donetsk, which he can do by taking Severodonetsk. He's almost there, he's about a mile away from cutting off the main supply line to Severodonetsk. Quickly then, he's gone back to World War II tactics, and there would be an encirclement of the Ukrainians as they've broken out of the trenches from 2014, and the Ukrainians would either have to fall back or be surrounded, and they would fall back, leaving the entire oblotsk of Luhansk in Putin's hands. He'd push on in Donetsk as far as he can go, but it's unlikely he takes all of it. He secures the land bridge in the south, and he declares a ceasefire, gets to resupply his men, and gets to watch the Westerners fight amongst themselves. And the worst outcome is that that this really hampers the Ukrainian war effort. And the best outcome from his point of view is that over time, as war weariness sets in and say the autumn, I mean, I think that for sure there will be an offensive or counter offensive by the Ukrainians, uh, backed by the Americans and the Eastern Europeans in the summer, but come the autumn, war weariness sets in and they accept these terms. That seems to be what Putin is playing for. That's all tactics, though. That doesn't mean the strategy of taking over all of Ukraine has changed. I don't think it has. I think Putin has been checked, thwarted, is vexed, is under a great deal of pressure, but the plan remains the same. You're just going to take Ukraine in bite sized morsels rather than all at once. His vast miscalculation, though, remains. And this is where geostrategically, Putin's already lost the war, as we've said before. He's woken up the Germans from their long winter nap. He's made NATO more relevant than it's been in decades. He's unified the West, at least for the moment. And this is the key testing point over Ukraine, over his invasion up to now. Uh, He's thrown the EU back into the arms of the American camp. And he's done all this without taking over Ukraine. So on one level, geostrategically, things still look bad. All that's baked into the cake. But strategically, this last throw of the dice, Putin has a game plan. And we've just outlined what it is. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Around the World in 20 Minutes. I know I did on this very, very busy week. I wanted to share our flagship uh, work with you. For those of you who like this, please do subscribe. Our subscription rates are going through the roof, probably because of the war. But again, Monday is our foreign policy vlog where we catch you up from the weekend. Tuesday is the culture we're going to do our next culture segment on albums you have to listen to before you're di- before you die looking at the fantastic album maybe my favorite ever concept album Forever Changes by the great Arthur Lee and Love and I earlier wrote about this and I'm going to now talk through what I wrote about Um, because I think this album is fascinating, and we'll continue our culture section. We'll also look at some painters next, some authors that are absolutely important and fundamental, and also film, as we've been doing our trip through Spaghetti Westerns. We'll now look at some other movies and Hitchcock. We'll keep doing that. Our flagship is, of course, Around the World in 20 Minutes. We're going to do some book serializations and also have uh, The Society by J.L. Ryder and book serializations coming up on Thursday, Thursday, And Friday is always the economics with Publius. We are a full-service newspaper where we directly talk to our community. Substack is the future without any editors getting between us. But to do this, you have to give. And we're asking merely $70 a year, $7 a month or $70 a year, the price of about the espresso, half an espresso, that I'm going to go make for myself before my next interview. So for $70 a year, we promise to keep this little local newspaper to the world going. Thanks so many of you for joining on board and we will keep them coming as we are first to explain Putin's strategic plan and everything else. Thanks a lot and have a great day.